Welcome to season four of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez, and in this show, we'll be talking to some real life experts on how to get through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and not maybe, but definitely feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. It is Thursday, December 17th, 2020. We are in a particular moment in time where the Electoral College in the United States has approved and voted for President-elect Joe Biden to be the incoming president along with Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, the current administration and president still has not officially conceded. Um, there's a stimulus bill uh, coming down the pike, which might not get approved. There's military spending um, in a bill that the current administration has vowed to veto, essentially defunding the military, which is interesting since we don't want to defund the police, says the current administration, but they're totally fine defunding the military. And we are about six days in a row of being at or above the number of people who died on one day on September 11th. We are currently past the total number of deaths from COVID-19, higher than the total deaths of Americans during World War II. And this is where we are, a week to the day before Christmas Eve in the United States. And we have tonight with us, Sophie from Northern California, but originally from the South of France. So from the South of France to Northern California, all the way to your ears or eyes, depending on how you're consuming this episode. Welcome, Sophie, to Thursday. How you doing? Oh, do you still ask that question um, when you do these? Um, you know, I feel like that's the it's the question people start any conversation with how you're doing. I think since when is it that this whole thing started March um, when we shut down pretty much? Uh, I never know how to answer that question. So should I ask you a different one? No, I can, I can attempt uh, the answer. Okay. Question. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> you know, what I've been doing is I put my feet on the ground and I try to feel like, you know, grounded. I literally have to do that every time I answer that question. Like, how do I feel? Oh, okay, I'm I'm here. I'm physically here. I'm present. I'm you know relatively healthy. Um, I'm alive. Uh, my family is alive, and um, so I guess I'm I'm okay. That's how I'm doing. I'm okay. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering, is this like a new thing? Because I almost feel like in the past, you and I have sort of made fun, if you will, of people, places, and things that are in the description of too woo-woo, quote unquote, right? Like it's a little too touchy-feely, too in the feelings. Like I, I used to work at a place where we had these check-in questions for every meeting and there were multiple meetings a day. And I was kind of in a, in a supervisory wow. like leadership role, which meant that I had to really be in a lot of different meetings. And so it could be a check-in about how you're doing for to five times a day. And, wow. um, and it's a lot of feelings. And I was just started shutting down after a while, um, mostly from like burnout, but also from like, I don't want to tell you how I'm doing every minute throughout the day. But now under, um, you know, a pandemic that's uh, gone on for a year now, we're in the holidays, it's cold and it's winter. Um, do you feel like anything is too woo-woo these days? You know, I feel like nothing is too woo-woo and everything is too woo-woo. Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, I um, I still hear you. And I think maybe the response you got from me is because it's 5.48 p.m. and it's How many meetings did you have today? That's what I was counting back to remember. <laughs> 
I think probably six. <gasps> oh. I used three different platforms today. I was on Teams, I was on Ring Central, I was on Zoom. Uh, actually, and I was also on FaceTime uh, for all those meetings. It turns out that nowadays, right, you see people more. It's this so you know, remember the day when you could call people on the phone? Like, you know, you could you were either meeting people in person for lunch or for a meeting, right. or you had a conference call. Uh-huh. So you actually had a little bit of privacy and a little bit of like space <laughs> where you can be on the phone and still kind of, you know, multitask. You can't do this now. Like you're literally on display uh, all day on different platforms with different quality of light, lighting behind you or uh, Zoom backgrounds of all course. So I feel like the what used to be maybe only in your field of work, the check-in uh-huh. is now kind of. Everybody Everywhere, does it. yeah. Right, and so I'd probably have to answer that question six times a day, and I have to ask that question six times a day, and I actually have to mean it, right? And you like have you to really just, be present and care about listening right. to what, what other people are feeling. People see you, and as much as people say that on Zoom you can't read people's energy, you can read. Yes, you, you know, can. You can. If anyone, I just for this is a little PSA. Anyone listening out there? Yes. It's Zoom, and yet I can see if you're really bored. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I can see the, the, if you're the thing, your the thing eyes. With, the thing with video conferencing of any platform is two words that are essential. Ready? Eye contact. And so if you have multiple screens and you're like, oh, wait, wait, hold on. Let me switch to another screen. It's because you don't want to be looking at your profile and you want like the, the idea, the ideal situation. Like I moved my window to be right underneath my camera right now because I want to make it seem like when I'm looking at the camera that I'm really looking at you, but I'm not looking at you. I'm not even looking at the camera. I'm looking at a video of you. So like this idea of like virtual or as much as you can make it as real eye contact is what's needed. And so what happens is if you're on a video call and you see somebody's eyes like clearly look past you or around the screen, you know that they're watching something else. If they're looking down, you know that they're doodling. Like you can totally tell everything. And, and you know, the, some people say, no, I'm taking notes, you know. Or, no, they're not. I'm doing whatever. <laughs> That's right. The, the other thing that is interesting Interesting is what used to maybe a comment about your appearance in a different context. Now people talk about lighting. <laughs> you had this experience. I mean, so instead of um, I really like your outfit, it's your your skin looks great. Your lighting is fantastic. Like I'm wearing glasses right now, and you can see what's on my screen from the reflection of my glasses. Say, so another PSA. I, that's exactly if what I was going. Are- <laughs> I see what other you're looking PSA, at if you, you have yes, glasses. Yes, if you have glasses, you see what the other person is looking at, especially in low lighting, because the reflection is like so, so there. So let me lift up my glasses so now you can't see. See, now I feel like you're paying attention to me. <laughs> I also, before I felt like uh, you had these fancy Google glasses that used to be fancy no, that nobody, no. that never went anywhere. You know what I'm Oh, the Google about? glasses. Yes, there was once, Google once made glasses that you were supposed to be able to use as like computer screen, but on your face and it was too That's loud true. and it was too big and, and it went nowhere. But I have to tell you something interesting. Um, I went to the eye doctor yesterday um, because shocker, Felicia has new health problems. Um, that That is not a <laughs> news flash. <laughs> no, it's you do. It's a nervous reaction. You know? it's a- <laughs> no, it's like every year there's going to be two or three big changes in in Felicia's health. Um, But basically, um, I have this thing called PVD. Something is detaching inside my right eyeball. And that's my bad eye. That's the one with the tumor and everything. So my left eye has been like the good eye. Not as of yesterday. As of yesterday. Yes, jealousy. The left became jealous of the right. Mm, Sound familiar politically? And so what happened is the left needed to make a stink. The left needed to have a problem. (laughs) And it turns out that the problem of the left is actually quite big. There is a significant tear in my retina in the bottom part of my left eye. It needs to be lasered closed because as PVD or this detachment of this inner jelly of my eyeball happens on the left eye, 
right, it could get into the hole and completely then detach from my retina on the left side. But I've only, this is my good eye. My good eye is the left eye, but not anymore. Now I just got bad eyes all around. But that's not the point. The point is that the doctor said, because I was like, I look at a screen all day, dude. What am I going to do? I'm already disabled. And he was like, well, what happens when you're looking at a screen, said my doctor, Dr. Freeman in Reno, Nevada. He said, when you're looking at a screen, your eyes tend to not blink because you're so focused. So when you're so focused on a screen, looking at what's happening on the screen, you tend not to blink. And that lack of blinking dries your eyes. And that lack of blinking and drying of your eyes makes you get headaches, makes you have all these problems. So he says, set a timer for 10 minutes and every 10 minutes, don't look at your screen, look at something else for 10 seconds and then go back. Do you know how ridiculous that is? I already have my watch that tells me when I'm supposed to stand, when I have the next meeting, and now I have to set a timer every 10 minutes to look at something different so that people will say that I'm not paying attention? Okay, can we, I mean, I, I have, is it too, I always have three things to say. Do you notice? I don't know, but. Um, so do I, just, but I don't count them. I go A, B, three, but go ahead. Oh, I like that. I, I just feel like it gives me a framework you know, don't talk too much. You don't, you know, you have three things to say. There's always, you know, um, here's what's been, I'm going to go back to the eye in a second. You started this interview with the description of the historical moment we're in. Yes. And then we move very quickly into the very personal, almost mundane, right, conversation. Mm. And then it moved into kind of more the real stuff. Even though you, you know, you still... It's kind of has that more uh, jokey tone, but right, right then it, when you got into health issues, and to me these three things that's kind of the pandemic in a nutshell. Like this is the last eight months, right? We're living this completely integrated lives where every moment we are faced by, you know, massive political questions, almost like existential threats to who we are, and then we have this. Uh, mundane deeply like almost funny comical things that we do to, in order to survive because if you don't laugh about it then it's really what's and then we are faced with all kinds of health issues that are not necessarily related to covid but are made even more complicated by covid right because it's harder to get to a doctor it's it's harder to get a um, uh, medical appointment or even to just have the space to think about your health in this different context so i just kind of was interesting that in this very is it nine minutes we started this conversation nine minutes ago and we've already hit these three major ways that our lives have shifted in the last you know what is it eight months nine months i can't well some would say it's already been a year um and historically we might look back at this time and go those fools thought that they were in year one. They were actually already in year two. Because again, it's called COVID-19, as in the year that it was discovered was 2019. Right. So this is November of 2019, where we have the first case of covid of this kind, COVID-19, because there are other COVIDs, COVID-18, right. COVID-17, you know, like there's other ones based on other years that we had um, different things like SARS has a COVID original number, different things like this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so COVID-19 begins in 2019. We are at the end of 2020. And yes, many folks started to hear about this, you know, international pandemic in February of this year of 2020. And then March is really the time where the whole planet decided we need to shut down in our own unique country ways. But if we look at things to the point that, you know, things began in November, have you heard this? Have you heard any friends and family share? I think that I had it in January. Have you heard this? People talking about, I, I think I, I had something like the this. News. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, not anyone that I know, but, you know, I was sick in early March, as you remember. And um, we got it. We again. captured it uh, on the interview. That's right. I think you we talked to us so, about the test. So it was um, when we thought it was just getting to the U.S. Right. And then there was some data that showed, no, it had been actually in California, at least in other places uh, since January. And now it makes it clear that it was there before and same in Europe. Um, 
yeah, no, I think that we're going to learn more. I think this is also what's interesting about what we know and how knowledge and uh, certainty is time to like, and, and time are two mm-hmm. dimension of things and how, how much that has shaped public opinion. And, you know, I think I, I was just talking to my parents in France about the lack of um, uh, trust that the public has right now in any response that the government is giving. And, and in part, it's not, you know, it's, I, I would say, you know, I can have sympathy for any person in power right now in the last nine months who's had to make decisions on the fly based on the limited science they had. Um, but I think what people are upset about is the, the, the full certainty that people in power feel like they had to convey. And so, you know, in France, it was in March where the government said, Mar- you know, masks don't matter. We don't need to wear masks. You know, only people who are sick need to wear masks. Wait, that's what, masks. but that's what France was saying in March? Yeah, in the early time days of the pandemic. And then, you know, later on, I don't exactly the timing. Don't, quote, you know, don't quote, quote me on this. Later on, the data was unassailable that, of course, masks mattered. And so then masks became um, advisable and then a, a mandatory thing. And really, when people went back, they realized that, no, they knew that masks were important, but they just didn't have them. And so there was a decision made to say, well, instead of telling the public, you know, masks matter, but we were not planful or we didn't, we're not ready for a pandemic. So we don't have the stockpile of masks that would allow us to give you one. So, you know, we're not going to tell you that you need one. And as of today, the president of France has COVID. That's you know, right. like uh, just about every leader of, of the major nations has come close to it if they're closest to being anti-mask like. Right. So we don't have Angela Merkel saying that, like she had COVID or, you know, had been close I mean, to COVID. Wearing a mask, I mean, to his, uh, you know, he's been since they changed course, he's been wearing a mask in public and very much pro mask. But the people, a lot of folks don't believe in masks because they're like, well, first you said masks doesn't matter. Now it matters. And I think you, you went to Angela Merkel or, 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 you know, if you look at New Zealand, there's a, a quality of leadership. And I, I don't want to go down the track of gender. I'm going to put that on the side for a second about women it leaders. It is there, though. It is there. I know, but but let's revisit it in a second. Okay. But um, I think the difference in leadership is that that leadership that says, I don't know, but the best information I have is this. And if you've built enough trust with the public. So, sorry. No, this is one of those very real moments that we were just (laughs) talking about. You looked past the screen. You stopped talking. You kind of mined to somebody else. So now we've become mimes too, where we That's can right. be like, shh, be quiet. I'm on the phone without saying like, and yet you're still on video. Like it's clear to me, that it's clear to everyone. Let's just be clear. That's right. Anyone listening, anyone reading, anyone, anything completely understands what just happened right now because it just happened. And this would have happened in real life. If I was interviewing you in real life, this would have happened. We maybe wouldn't have seen it because it would have just yeah. been a recording. But That's right. if, if you and I were just having this conversation it still would have been an interruption and it just would have been more real so thank you for the genuine example <laughs> of what we were earlier talking about it was startling too but but, um, but 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 what's interesting about what you were just saying is also today came out physical in writing reporting that early on it was in the united states the president and current administration oh said oh no yeah, this is bad, but let's just tell them not to wear masks and let's just actually try and get a lot of people sick so that we can be doing the whole herd immunity on our own. Like they played scientists. They, They lied with intention, with intention. It wasn't a mistake. It was deliberate. And to your point about, you know, President Macron in, in, in France, same thing. Didn't tell the truth with intention because I'm going to look bad if you don't have the proper PPE personal protective equipment. Instead, I'd rather make the mask look bad because the mask is not up for re-election. And yet 
I don't know if you saw this earlier this week, the CDC is now going to start to do things that it wasn't doing before because it didn't felt like it, it felt like it didn't have the support right under the current administration. Now that they know that new change in leadership is coming in, they're starting to step up a little more, figuring maybe I won't get fired or thrown under the bus for this. Like, let's grade the masks. Let's give the masks some kind of a grading scale so that you know which mask is the best for what you have in terms of chronic conditions, underlying conditions, particular breathing needs, and what is needed to keep you safe depending on what environment you're in. Like I've been buying masks like crazy and I think I can tell the difference between them, but I'm not a scientist and I don't freaking know. So it would be great if somebody did. And so there's all these things that are finally now starting to happen after almost what, 13, 17 million people have died. Like this doesn't make any sense. Well, and it, it's, um, you know, it goes back to this, this, you know, courageous leadership, right. Or, uh, and, you know, I think the political calculation that are deeply racist, uh, let's just call it what it is, that that at least the one that you just talked about for the U.S. But it, it's, you know, if I take France as an example, almost it, the, the fact is in a lot of country, Asian countries, people were wearing masks before COVID. Right. Like we right. know that masks actually, they help spread, stop the spread of the flu or cold. It's not rocket or science. any infection, like you or know, any, nurses and doctors wear them in surgery, not to That's give right. any infection to an open body. So I don't know if we needed to have seven months of COVID to come to realization that masks make a difference. It really was an economic calculation. We didn't have the masks for everyone, and so we chose to say that they didn't matter as much. You know, you know that there is a some lesson there for us to remember for the next round. But, you know, again, I was talking to my mom about France and she said, oh, people are saying, um, you know, oh, the, you know, politicians are exaggerating COVID and everything else because look, nobody's got, the flu is really low this year. Nobody has the flu. And I was like, yeah, because people are wearing masks. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> and maybe we can learn from this for next year when, you know, a lot of people die from the flu that frankly would not need don't need to die that maybe if we all right. were masked in public transit for three months, it's not the biggest infringement on our personal freedoms to wear a mask for three months so that more vulnerable folks who are next to us in the bus or on the subway don't get the flu. So there's some norms, right? Like some collective norms that hopefully will shift through this pandemic, but they won't shift if we're not intentional about it. And if we don't remember, I think one of the interviews, the theme uh, that you brought up was, kind of memory and remembering, right? And um, kind of, and trauma. And, you know, this is a deeply traumatic moment for most, you know, for the humanity. And what will we remember from it? And what adjustments are we going to make as a result? That's going to be, you know, it's on us. It's on us at a global level and a personal level. Just so that we're clear with our numbers for today, again, it's December 17th, 2020. In the United States, there are 16,756,581. So 16,756,581 total cases of COVID-19. So almost 17 million people currently right now today have COVID-19 deaths of since this began and we started counting the numbers, which there's also debate over what counts as a COVID-19 death. And are we really That's getting right. the most accurate numbers here, but deaths of COVID-19 that are currently being reported as of today, 306,427. So that's where we are as of 3.03 p.m. from the CDC, and it is absolutely intense what is, is going on. And, you know, you get to talk to your, your parents and your family in, in France, and you're also living here, and 
it almost felt like what you were describing was a similarity point, like a place where the leadership mm-hmm. of both countries weren't willing to say the absolute yep. truth because it was going to hurt them politically. But now that our current administration isn't up for re-election anymore, they lost. Um, they're not talking at all. Like there's nothing. They're not saying uh, a lie or the truth. They're saying nothing. Which right. do you think, in your humble opinion, is worse, telling lies or silence in the middle of a global pandemic? I think it's just as, I mean, the uh, you know, you can lie by omission, right? So I think silence is deadly. Silence is an action. You know how people often feel like, well, I didn't, not doing something is a, is a choice. So I think it's, uh, I would argue it's probably just as bad. I mean, I, I, I think what we learned today or a couple of days ago about the, uh, the horror, I don't have any other word, of the idea that we would sacrifice young people and vulnerable people for herd immunity, um, in like flying in the face of the scientific evidence they already had in hand, that just is, you know, it's a crime, honestly. I don't know how, what else to describe it. So I guess it's in that way, maybe being silent is not the same. But I think if you have data and facts that would save lives and you don't share it, that's just as bad. Well, you remember you remember when I said right now that in the United States, we have um, almost it's 16 with some big change. So almost 17 million cases of covid and that we had three hundred and six hundred thousand deaths. Okay, so again, three hundred and six thousand and almost 17 million cases total. Well, in France, your home country, total is 2.43 million cases of positive COVID-19 and 59,000 deaths. Like, you have chump change compared to- No, I know, but I don't know. Do we know the per capita? That's what I would need to know. But I think it's much, you know, because it's, you know, what is it, 65 million people in France or so, 70 million in how many Americans? Oh, so now, so now you're going to be like uh, our current president when he said, "Well, of course we have more positive tests. No, we but test I don't know more." About the, I think the ratio. No, we test more in France. There's no question uh, that we test more. Uh, but in terms of number of deaths, I think it's. I, I think the U.S. ratio per capita is one of the highest in the world. Uh, I don't know where France um, uh, ranks in terms of Europe. I think because of the death toll in Italy in the early month. Right. Um, I don't think that anyone is going to catch up to that. Like it was such a bloodbath. I mean, there were mass graves. There were mass graves like so early on. The speed of the spread in Italy, it it was just a combination of, uh, you know, multi-generational households and kind of, you know, just the way it spread and the, the fact that the hospitals couldn't keep up right away. I don't I don't think that's happened since anywhere, you know, to that degree, except that, you know, it's creeping up in California where I am. Uh, and the county has had the highest number of deaths recorded in, in months uh, just this week alone. Um, so and we're, we're, we're nearing ICU capacity in Southern California and Northern California. So I think we are. You know, and it's this again. It's this. It, this is this moment where there is this, you know, tension. You see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, the vaccines have already arrived. Some people have already gotten. You know, first vaccinations have happened, uh, and yet our numbers are rising, right? And it's this cognitive dissonance that people are going to have to face between like hope is here, and yet therefore this is why I have to be super careful right now. Like I can't let my guard down. Like this is the moment to actually be really safe because the end is is in sight, and that's not what we're seeing, right? It's very uh, it's very hard, I think, for people to hold contradictions. Well, let's let's pause here for a minute. It has um, there have been quite a few gaps um, between the last interview that I had and this interview with you. It's been a few weeks since I've spoken to someone, and. It is only now that we have two patented um, FDA approved 
big pharma, uh, Moderna and Pfizer, two different vaccines that mm-hmm. are now available for folks living in the United States to get. They're different. Um, they have a different uh, makeup and recipe, if you will. Um, again, these are not um, vaccines that are public. They are not owned by the public. They are not owned by the government. They are owned by these big pharmaceutical companies. This is big money. Um, somebody's paying for them. And um, the question really is right now, if people are going to take them, a vaccine was created for a virus that we've never seen before in less than a year. Um, And so there's a lot of folks, in my opinion, rightfully skeptical um, about a vaccine um, of this nature coming out so fast because we frankly do not know what the side effects are long term. We know what the side effects are immediately. There are actually a few folks who've had really intense side effects within seconds of getting the vaccine, um, only as far as then needing to stay in a hospital overnight. Nobody has died from receiving the vaccine yet. Um, We don't know what happens to people who are um, currently nursing or pregnant. Um, We don't know so much about this vaccine. And to your earlier points, right, about trust, about truth, about information. Mm -hmm. I just spoke to a good family friend um, who is a breast cancer survivor. And we were both, you know, sharing uh, information about what teaching has been like virtually, what our health has been like. And she begged the question, are you going to take the vaccine? And I said, I just want to hug my mom. So if I can hug my mom, I will do whatever it takes to safely for myself and for my mom, hug my mom. That is my intention. I will do whatever it takes to be able to hug my mom again. And her mom has passed. So we don't have that in common anymore about the willingness to do whatever for this particular, you know, like parent in our lives. Right, right. But she was like, uh-uh, I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. And I was like, really? What's the alternative? And she said, what is the alternative? And, and, and it really begs this question of like, oh my God, are we going to get to a place of actually being safe? from COVID-19 with a vaccine, to your point, is the end really near? Because the other thing that happened early this week, I don't know if you heard this story, is that COVID has mutated, as we knew it would. And it is mutated to the point where in Europe, its mutation version, it's growing more and more and is becoming more and more saturated. So will the vaccine that we have right now for one version of COVID actually be the one that protects us from any mutated versions of it thoughts probably not but <sighs> i mean this is where do i have thoughts yes do i have opinions yes but i am i i'm like the furthest away from being an expert on any of this but i would say from I, you know at some point you make these decisions based on again it's trust it's um looking at experience at similar situations i mean i think the look at the flu Every year we have to get a new vaccine. The flu virus mutates every year. You use the flu, the flu, you know, the strain from year one to generate the vaccine for year two, knowing that it's not going to be perfect match because there's going to be a new. And that's why, you know, by the time you get to March, it's not as effective anymore. Right? Like the vaccine is more effective in the early months of the flu. So I don't know if COVID-19 is of the same kind, if they will be generating different vaccines over time. Um what is really interesting to me is that this vaccine uses a totally different uh, technology, right? They, this uh, RNA uh, strategy that they're using. So it's new. Yes. Has it been used for vaccine? No. It sounds like it's, but, you know, if you trust the scientists, and I have to say at some point you have, there's a leap of faith, but there's also just a body of data and evidence, right? That to me, if the major, um, uh, epidemiologists and uh, uh, professors around the world and the World Health Organization believe it's safe and it's 90% effective. I'm going to be, as soon as I'm eligible and others who need it more than me have gotten it, I will definitely will get the vaccine. I have zero reservations. I mean, it, it's, it is what it is. I mean, I think for, for me, I don't have a reservation. I hear 
where your, your friend is coming from. I think from a public health standpoint, what is really scary to me is that half of the vaccines have been purchased by the rich countries of the world. So there's this right. kind of interesting moment, right? Thing where the rich countries of the world have literally purchased half of the doses that are available for the foreseeable future for their population. And these are the people who are like, I'm not sure I want it at the individual <laughs> level. Um, wait, wait. I love, I love that you said it that way. Like there are people who live in countries that cannot afford to buy them or cannot get access to the first rounds of these vaccines. And so they don't have a choice. And we so arrogantly in the United States and other European countries that are first in line to get are like, I don't know if I'm going to take it. Really? I, I, you know, I'm just putting out there. It, it, it is, it just, uh, it's not, it's complex. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see how um, PSAs get developed, like who's going to get vaccinated on TV? You know, who are those spokespeople that folks trust in different communities? And, you know, and like I will say it makes sense that in some communities in the United States, people don't trust the vaccine um, when you have a history of medical abuse and neglect and lying and genocide. Right. Like so that uh, I would understand, I understand why there is a lack of trust in that context. I'm, I'm not making light of it. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's very real and it's very rational as a res- you know, as a response, particularly in the United States. And we're talking about, you know, black folks in the United States and even brown folks and, and indigenous, you know, indigenous people folks. like when yep. we. When we look at the indigenous population, which has been hit the hardest in terms of, yep. you know, per capita and percentages from COVID-19, um, you know, what we have are harking back to the history, the loss and the mistrust from, yep. you know, um, getting blankets as yep. you're being forced to move to a reservation and getting, you know, uh all different kinds of of diseases. Colonialism itself has a history of disease being one of the most rampant ways of actually colonizing a a country, a land, a people. Then we have the same sort of, you know, um, experiences, um, but even more, you know, um, sinister in in their intention, right? With doing these particular kinds of of tests on sexually transmitted diseases and um, and different cures for them with our uh, black Black and, and, and African-American population in the United States. And then we have within this moment, this year of the first year of COVID-19, hearing about massive, you know, um, unsolicited uh, and uh, unapproved, you know, um, hysterectomies of yeah. women, you know, who are in these detention uh, camps and prisons and imprisoned for trying to leave with their families or alone, leaving uh, different Central and South Latin American countries um, and not just coming from the South uh, to to the North, because this includes countries like Haiti and Belize um, and so on and so forth. So we have this history of of putting on the front lines of cures and tests our most vulnerable and our most marginalized communities. Um, If you look back to World War II and you go back to Europe, just think of anybody who were in the many categories of people who were sent to concentration camps under Nazi Germany. We talk about the genocide and the Holocaust of, uh, you know, uh, Jewish Europeans. Um, But that's 11 million in total and 6 million were for religious beliefs, the other 5 million who were for all these other communities, uh, you know, folks who were labeled as political prisoners, gypsies, homosexuals, um, you name it, political dissidents, right? So you take the people who you don't actually want, and instead of just straight up killing them, you do all these other things to justify the inhumanity um, and still there's folks who, who are absolutely fine. I want to change subjects for just a second because there's a whole nother way that people have been dying and are under um, duress and, and constant fear 
of you know physical harm. And that is not from the pandemic of COVID-19, but from the pandemic of the Trump presidency and white supremacy in general, which this yeah. last week in Washington, D.C., two days ahead of the Electoral College vote, we have led by the Proud Boys, um, the group that the president asked to stand down and stand by um, in his last presidential debate. You know, they were out in the streets And four people were stabbed in Washington, D.C. One person was shot and killed in uh, Portland, Oregon, because these were coordinated uh, political activities that happened across the country. Smaller numbers in other places, bigger in others. Um, Two uh, black churches uh, were set on fire in Washington, D.C. And several uh, banners outside of churches and public and private institutions that said Black Lives Matter were set on fire, uh, much to the sort of, you know, like of burning an American flag, burning uh, a Black Lives Matter banner. And these kinds of stories did not get a lot of attention attraction this week about the Proud Boys or, you know, these attacks on individuals or, you know, Black spaces for gathering of communities. Why do you think that is? Do Are we trying not to give fuel to the fire of hate? And is there danger in ignoring what's going on? Oh, is there danger in ignoring what's going on? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know why it didn't get the kind of attention it deserves. I mean, I think I I do not I don't like the using I know that's what they call themselves, proud boys, but I think there's a you know, let's call them what they are. They're, it's terrorists. You know, it's domestic terrorism. You know, I wish the media just just like they are very much able to use uh, terminology that is problematic in other areas or not, you know, could have a concerted effort to call what these attacks, what they are, which is ter- domestic terrorism. And, you know, even the FBI, their own data, even during the Trump administration, make clear that the number one danger to the safety of the of the country comes from white supremacist groups. Right. Heavily armed, ready, connected, organized. I mean, this is this is, you know, uh, what you see in other countries that we readily call terrorism. Uh, you know, it has sleeper cells, it has organized networks, it's connected to power, uh, it's, uh, they can be activated, they're heavily armed and resourced. And it is scary. And it is scary because not only do we see the acts of violence like the ones you're describing, but because our own intelligence community has raised the alarm over the last right. four years. So I, I do think this is going to be a huge priority of this new administration. We're going to have to figure out how to respond to this as a country, not just uh, uh, in your idiosyncratic way, waiting for, you know, churches to be burned and people to be killed, but actually a concerted effort to root out, go to the root causes of uh, these groups because they they have grown and they are ready to strike. So, I mean, I, you know, don't want to be alarmist, but I do think that it is. um, And maybe that's why people are not talking about this as much because they know that it runs deep. I don't know, but I, I, I am, I am worried about uh, 2021, you know, and especially when, you know, it's people, if you play with fire in this way, I mean, when you see uh, some, you know, members of Congress refuse to accept the election result. Mm -hmm. You can be surprised um, to see these kinds of acts of violence. It's uh, these words, people are careful with their words and they're calculated words. They are uh, words that incite violence. So does that mean that you uh, how are you feeling then about what's going to happen in the first hundred days of the new current administration? You know, the inauguration um, in January of 2021 is going to be virtual. Um, no one is going to be there. Also, fun fact to note, before that, 
the New York City ball drop that happens on New Year's Eve is not happening this year. There is no gathering. There is no concert outside. There is no ball dropping um, outside for people to watch. That has been postponed, canceled, uh, not happening Let's, this year. Can we postpone New Year? Can we just use like <laughs> another New Year? Can we just use the Jewish New Year, you know, some other calendar? We don't have to use the Gregorian calendar this year. Just, you know. <laughs> Well, you know, LAUSD is a school district in Los Angeles, California, sent out an email to their educators uh, a week before grades were due saying no one can fail. (laughs) You're not allowed to fail any of your students, but they never showed up. Nope, they didn't fail. They didn't fail. Like what? what, there's so many things going on. I just want to know quickly. What's your knee-jerk reaction? What do you think is going to happen in the first 100 days of the new administration? What three things, since you love the number three, what three things do you predict (laughs) will happen in the first 100 days of the incoming administration? I think we're going to feel like a breeze from the sigh of release, like that collectively we're going to exhale. (sighs) Uh Uh-huh. With or without a mask on? It sounds different. it does sound different. I think, you know, I was picturing without a mask, but I okay, think okay. I'm going to wear a mask right now so you can hear the difference. You know, you heard it before. Now, yeah. I know your listeners can't see it, but. <sighs> yeah, it's a little still, muffled. So we're going to do a, muffled. we're going to have a muffled exhale. Got it. I like and it. it's going to be just a, a cleanse, uh-huh. you know, a little cleanse over the country. Yeah. Like, a, yeah. <sighs> you know, we're going to drop our shoulders Oh, there's going to be a little bit of a, there's the woo-woo-ness. Here it is. Here see, it is. See? I can be, I can, I can bring it. Uh, uh-huh. No, it's not me, but I, I've learned. Pandemic mm-hmm. has taught me mm-hmm. uh, that it's good to be a little woo-woo. Um, so that's what's going to happen. Second, um, I'm knocking on wood, but I think we're going to have not what we want, but a relief package that uh, hopefully will reach uh, those in our country who have suffered the most because of the pandemic. Um, so that's my hope that will happen in the first hundred days. And they might be, um, I'm just going to stay on the COVID, you know, thing, a, you know, national mask mandate, depending on our numbers. Uh, really, really then hitting home the collective sigh of relief mm-hmm. in exhale that is muffled. Muffled. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I think like all the data shows that if you do, if you do the right thing for even four weeks, you completely turn the ship around. Right. And you, you get to a place where even though the vaccine is going to be slow to, to kind of roll out to, you know, round two and three of, of folks in, in, in the order of priority, which in and of itself is another conversation. We can have, you've like thrown so many issues at me that I feel like each of them you know, war in three hour conversation. And they all point to the same thing. You know, equity is not really what's driving any of the agendas that we've talked about. But I'll put that, you know, aside. But I would say first hundred days, a national mask mandate, uh, or let's say science driven decision making on the pandemic with a, an eye towards minimizing the loss of life uh, would be number one. Number two, I do think that um, it's going to hopefully change the collective nature of like how people feel to just have this change in DC that we've been waiting for for so long. Uh, and I'm hoping that there is, uh, and I know this is a big debate out there, right? Like how much pressure should there be on the president-elect from the left wing of the Democratic Party in the first 100 days versus you know, how much does he get to do what he wants to do or uh, what his admission wants to do in the first 20 days? You know, we'll see. But I, I think um, some decisive actions, at least on COVID, um, are going to be good. And uh, I mean, I, I think what you're bringing up is is this thing that has has been very close and very apparent and, and that has a big spotlight on it at different times and at other times has been totally in the background, right? But in this year, we've had two things threatening us the entire time. 
a new pandemic that we don't know and that every day we know more about and less about at the same time, and a growing threat of white supremacy and state-sanctioned violence and the potential of an extension to that with a second term of the current president, right? So we have at the same time, not only a change in leadership, but also a change in health potential with the vaccine. Both of these hope-giving things are happening at the same time. And yet both the vaccine and uh, the new administration of Biden and Harris also share in common that we really don't know what is going to happen and how successful they're going to be because they are both dealing with something that we have never seen like this before all at once, right? Right. We have a massive economic, um, you know, depression at our hands and that's only going to get worse. We have um, millions who are sick, uh, hundreds of thousands who have died and we don't have socialized medicine. Um, you know, there are all these things that, you know, Biden can say, well, I was in command when we had SARS and Ebola. Yeah, but it didn't do this. Well, I was at command uh, when we, we were handed a horrible economy and we had to bring it back. Yeah, but that wasn't at the same time or at the scale of this. Right. So they have some experience with some version of this, but not at scale. And so does the vaccine. Right. But I, I, I'm going to go back to what you asked about the first 100 days. And there is a lot that Biden can do through executive you know, action. Um, so, again, I'm going to move away from the, vac- the, the COVID, from COVID for a second. But, you know, you can think of protecting climate. I mean, re- rejoining the Paris Accord, like there's a ton he can do, even if it's symbolic on climate, bringing that back to the forefront. Civil rights protections, he can do a ton. Uh, I think on the kind of the new New Deal, you know, is that is that going to be his kind of like the administration? That is the biggest question, uh, you know, where uh, I don't know how much he's going to do on the economy in the first 100 days. It, 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 but um, I'm excited. I, I, I just, I have to have to, to like lean into hope. <laughs> <laughs> because it's so bad. There's only one way you can look when you're at the bottom, which is up. That's also, by the way, the only way you can, uh, the only direction you have to look when you're dead is up. But <laughs> okay. at that point, you can't see anymore. So what's the point? And that brings me to another news story that happened this week, which is that while this child who was nine years old, died in 2012 from a series of fatal asthma attacks in London. It was seven years later now in 2020 that this young British nine-year-old black child has officially been recorded in a landmark ruling that their death was caused from air pollution. And there's so much to unpack there. Before COVID, a young nine-year-old black girl was suffering from asthma and serious hospitalizing asthma attacks, not because there was a factory, not because Mm -hmm. of COVID, but because she happened to live in a home that was near massive thoroughways for car traffic. That was seven years ago. Now with COVID and the impacts that it has on our lungs and on our breathing, we can only imagine how many future nine-year-old black girls in London or in the United States or any other part around the world are also going to die. And will it be a landmark ruling that it's because of COVID-19? Will someone at some point in the future be able to be on the side of a landmark ruling where Trump and the current GOP party and the current administration is recorded as the cause of death for all of these individuals who've died in the United States? 
Like we are, we are living in the moment where the past and the future are so with us in our present times. And one of the funny things that you mentioned about the vaccine is that it is not like any other vaccine. It is an mRNA. Our typical vaccines that we've made before in the United States and that many of us have in our bodies is that we get a little bit of the virus into right. our body and our body then with a little bit of it learns how to fight it. But COVID-19 is too dangerous for us to learn how to fight it. So instead, what's happening is that a protein is being put into our own immune system that you know how the, we've had all these pictures of what COVID-19 looks like, that it's a ball and it has these red spiky things all over it. Well, the protein that would get put into our body with the vaccine would create that red little spiky thing. And our body would learn how that got made and would learn to not make it anymore. So this new vaccine for COVID-19, whether it's from Pfizer or Moderna, is just a new recipe to teach our immune system to understand what COVID-19 looks like and to basically say COVID-19 is banned from being produced in this body. It's just banned. It's almost like, you know how there's some stores that have pictures of people. These people are banned. They did bad things here. They did things here that we were refusing the right to service them. It's casinos, bars, and marshals. Okay. So I know that it happens in the back in the security space. There's pictures of people. I know this. Everybody knows this. This is what this COVID-19 vaccine is. It's giving us a picture of COVID-19 and saying, don't let this person into the bar known as your body. And if it mutates, if it grows a mustache, if it gains some weight, if it changes its hair length, we might not recognize it and let it in. Are you describing most of us right now? <laughs> what it feels like. <laughs> I'll put that aside. I, I was kind of getting, I'm I was feeling personally attacked for a second. Um. <laughs> now, now, wait a minute. I want, before I let you go, I want to turn to something that could but you be. You know what I really wanted to talk about, which oh. I didn't get to? Yeah. That's I'm... okay, because we're going to have another conversation at yeah, some yeah. point. Yeah. So a couple of, a few days ago, and I haven't read the case or the, oh, no. what exactly happened. Uh, but the, so the mayor of Paris is a woman. And she's been trying to promote women in leadership in the city government. And she was fined by a local administrative judge because 60% of this leadership position at the, in the city of Paris are women for the first time in history. And that, that was a violation of equality because there were more women than men. What? <laughs> yes. Can I just just let that sink in? Just, this is, you know, ironically called the city of lights. Let's put that aside. But anyways, the this is this is 2020, you know, December. Wait a minute. And the mayor of where? Of Paris. The mayor of Paris, who is a woman, a woman, stepped down because there's so many oh, other she women. Didn't step in down. She didn't step down. She has been promoting women to different leadership roles inside city government, right? Like, so different departments yeah. now have finally more women in charge yeah. than men. Like, historically, it's been, you know, 100%. Of course. So she got to not parity, which is kind of how the French has thought about it, but to 60% women. of these positions are women for the first time. And that's when the government decided to give her a fine because how dare we have gender imbalance in these positions of power. How dare we have equity instead of equality? That's right. <laughs> so that's for, um, you know, another episode. But I, okay. you can sense my, you know. Snarkiness? I, I mean. You're, you're losing your feet on the groundness? That's right. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked once how many women should be in the Supreme Court. And she said, you know, nine so and um and, it, and and but 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 since you brought up women mayors let me just bring up this new fun fact as well just getting it all in a mayor republican a republican mayor 
in western Kansas Tuesday announced that she was resigning because of the threats that she had been receiving from publicly supporting mask wearing. And in her statement, she says, it is my hope that in my resigning, the violence and the terror will stop. Somebody has to replace her, but she's hoping that the attacks will maybe keep coming to her instead of whoever's in, in new leadership. This is a Republican. So it's, it's not even safe anymore to be on any particular party line because the new party line is mask or no mask. All of us are just you. I mean, these are the new par- party lines. Um, and it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that second fun fact. Yes. That's... <laughs> uh, we, we, we have to get, can we go back to the woo-woo? Because I feel like we need yes. a little... Yes, let's go back boost. to the woo-woo. Okay, so here's how I was going to end, right? So th- this particular season's theme was about the things that stay, the things that stick, because COVID sticks. So what's going to stick with us? And I think we've done a pretty good job at talking about what's going to stick and what's not uh, in a roundabout way. But I want to go to some woo thing uh, before we leave as you're my last interview uh, for this entire season. And so we won't be back until the month of love, uh, which is February, where we will officially have a full 365 days with the same people to complete our year as that's when this podcast began. So the question that I want to ask you is, how excited are you for Aaron's wedding, our friend who is also interviewed on this podcast, who is getting married on New Year's Eve 2020? And it's a Zoom wedding, all virtual. How excited are you for this wedding? And do you think anything would really be, you know, different if it was in person, like, do you think it would still have happened at all or still happen on New Year's Eve if we weren't under COVID? Like, what are the things that make this particular wedding on New Year's Eve 2020, all virtual on Zoom, so spectacular? Uh, well, I was saying that um, I think COVID is making everybody really think deeply about what matters, right? And who matters and how uh, time is precious and love is precious. So that's reason number one, why I think our dear friend Aaron has decided to make it happen as uh, both to say goodbye and F you to 2020, um, but also in the most spectacular flamboyant way that I'm sure they're gonna come up with. Um, so I think that that one, we know what matters and we're prioritizing it. Two, uh, because there's always on the other side, a more a darker side, which is that Um, Our relationships, right? Queer relationships are at risk once more with the Supreme Court that we have. And I think it is smart. Um, Again, when you know that your healthcare depends on your partner or your spouse, your housing, the future safety of your retirement, um, you, you know, that makes the conversation about should we make it legal or not really more important and the timing is of the essence. So I don't know if that's why they decided to, you know, do it uh, quickly, but I think that probably has, is a factor whether it's conscious or, or not. Is it going to be weird that we're going to remember 2020 as this like horrible pandemic year and also the year that Aaron got married. Like, how do you how do you deal with that when when something spectacular happens at the same time as something so devastating? I think that is what uh, the beauty of of human resilience, you know, and um, the human spirit is that we actually there are um, there's still so much beauty around us, so much love. So many acts of courage. I mean, I hope that's what we remember out of 2020 is the way that people, I mean, we can choose to look at the other side or we can choose to look at the way people stood up against uh, anti-Black racism, the way people um, stood up in solidarity and passed out meals and masks and uh, took triple shifts at the hospital. So I think I will, I want to look at 
you know, this wedding as one other example of the way that love triumphs and that we can, even in the face of the, a pandemic, you can carve out a little bit of moment for love and for connection. And we've learned, we've talked about this, that you can have meaningful, deep connections on Zoom. And so I cannot wait to raise my glass to these two on Zoom and to know that we can celebrate without risking their lives or our lives. What, what, I mean, what more can we do as an act of love? Well, Sophie, we started out talking about many things, but eventually got to my eyesight. And to this idea of seeing things from two different perspectives and ways um, and all these different kinds of things, I want to leave us with this, which is text from my computer when I looked up, what is the purpose of having two eyes? And the answer is, humans have two eyes, but only use one image. We use our eyes in synergy together to gather information about our surroundings. Binocular or two-eyed vision has several advantages, one of which is the ability to see the world in three dimensions. We get to see depth. We get to see how far away, how close, how dangerous, how hopeful something is because we get to see distance and proximity when we have both eyes that we can see with. That binocular vision allows us to see proximity and that proximity either makes us feel danger or hope or relief or any of those kinds of things. And so we end this particular season and we end this interview and we end this moment and we end this year really talking about both these things and all the many multiplicity of things that we get to hold at the same time right now. And to your point, that is just life as a human being, which only makes me more and more jealous every day of my dogs. <laughs> so... <laughs> So Sophie, thank you for making the time and for um, trying to answer and push back on all of my random pieces of information and questions to you tonight. That was so uh, amazing. I can't wait to frankly listen to the entire series in order. You know, I'm so grateful that you decided to be our documentarian historian. Um, and I can't wait to listen to this, you know, a year from now, two years from now. There's going to be so much to learn from our old selves. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human. Stay human.